Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And today we're joined by Adrian Tchaikovsky. So most science fiction and fantasy focuses on humans, or at least societal structures that are recognisable from within cultures on Earth. But given that genre fiction is meant to be one of unlimited imagination, why do we find it so difficult to imagine societies where hierarchies aren't defined by gender, and more specifically, where the default gender and power is male? So I have read quite a few Adrian Tchaikovsky books this year. <laughs> um, I've read The Tiger and the Wolf, Serpent and the Bear, Children of Time and Dogs of War. I know, right? I mean, you know, this guy writes way too much. Um, <laughs> we need, he needs to give some other authors a chance to sort of make it to the top of my to-be-read pile. Um, but reading all these books, I noticed that he does something that I've not seen much of elsewhere. And that is regularly creating matriarchies in his SFF worlds. So with this realisation, I knew I wanted to pick his rather exquisite brain. So I'm very pleased to be talking to Adrian today about world building and imagining new social norms for entirely fictional societies. But before I head straight into the hard-hitting questions, uh, let's pretend Adrian needs some introducing. Well, hello. Yes, I'm, uh, I am Adrian Tchaikovsky. I am most well known for writing books about spiders, I suppose. Um, I wrote, I've written a lot of fantasy, including a 10-book sequence, which is frankly not something you'll get to do very often. Uh, but probably my most well-known book by some considerable margin is uh, Children of Time from uh, 2016. Yes. 2015, sorry. Well, this w <laughs> and, and don't forget to mention that it, you know, it won some pretty big awards. Yeah. It, <laughs> You know what? I, I still, despite despite the fact that it's happened and I've had two years to get you get used to it, I still don't know how to do that without sounding like an appalling ass myself. <laughs> but yes, I, it it did. It won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in um, uh, twenty sixteen last year, and that is a very fine thing. Yes, and uh, I made the mistake of actually listening to the audiobook of this, and uh, I, I live quite near some sort of uh woods which are very kind of creepy but they get really <laughs> dark and i was walking through it and i'm just re you know listening to this audiobook all about spiders coming down and attacking each other and i was like this is maybe not the best place <laughs> to be listening to this so I, I started getting myself a little bit freaked out but it's fine also because i'm australian so i was imagining you know terrifying australian spiders but yes you do have rather a different uh, sort of sp <laughs> spider background to me but yes, um, I, I did really enjoy that. And then your your latest book is Dogs of War, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, that's It was great fun. But I did just want to go around and calling everyone a good dog after that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's crack on. So, you know, a lot of science fiction and fantasy, you know, despite being genres where literally anything is possible they end up regurgitating gender and social norms that already exist. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, some of your thoughts on, you know, is this a failure of imagination on the writer? Or maybe do we assume that readers won't actually like to read about anything that they can't kind of uh, imagine from their own experiences? Is it a bit of both? Um, what, I, what I think it is, is a lot of science fiction and fantasy basically comes with a, a particular big idea baked in. And that tends to be the thing that the, um, the writer is interested in. And 
a lot of the time, if the writer isn't careful, the things that they're not specifically interested in for that particular book or series can basically, I guess, set reset to default, which means that you tend to get certain types of societies and certain types of hierarchies appearing again and again, basically unexamined, especially in fantasy, I think. Um, just because really it's not that bit that the writer is interested in. They're interested in a certain way that the magic works or, you know, certain, a certain monster or creature or something like that, or just the, the characters they're writing about. And to do so, they then present what is a fairly, say, a fairly, let's say a fairly derivative, say, cod European medieval setting. Yeah with all of the assumptions that people bring to that that don't necessarily map actually what the European Middle Ages even looked at, they looked like. I mean, there's a huge debate on things like um, uh, medieval people of colour, for example, because they, they were, that was a very common thing. But we think of the Middle Ages, or we, it, the standard way of thinking of the Middle Ages is, is it's a very, very white place and a place where men had a certain role and women had a certain rather subservient role and that sort of thing gets sort of trotted out a lot, I think, just because it's what people, people who have a very, fairly vague idea of history, but that's what they think history was like. Hmm. And, and it's not the thing that they're particularly writing about, and therefore it just gets, um, it just gets this kind of the same wall, wallpaper from book to book. Yeah, I mean, that to me sounds a bit like a failure of imagination of the writers then you know if you're, we're kind of it, it's how we get over that default i know um sort of on well, the, yeah on i mean if 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 if, if, you're, if you're writing if you're writing a book that is sort of intentionally and expressly based in a historical period then obviously you you kind of owe it to your right in your now yeah, you owe it to your readers to research that period and present it in an interesting way not ne just necessarily in the kind of the mgm movie from the from the 60s sort of way where everything's, <laughs> everything's terribly clean and king and all the kings are lovely and all of the uh the dukes are evil and that kind of thing and if you're writing a completely secondary world there is absolutely no reason for you to to go with those norms and it'll be a more interesting book if you don't absolutely and i mean this is why i think um for me when i was reading some of your books you know that it stood out for me um just the fact that you have these worlds where, where some of them aren't exactly like what we know. Um, and it, it's kind of a sad state of affairs when that leapt out to me as, as something that I'd not seen anywhere. And, uh, you know, fantastic. Thank you for doing that. But also just, you know, why isn't this happening more? It's just, um, it, it's so interesting to me. And it seems like there's so much room for exploring new ideas. And, and, you know, we always lament the lack of originality and surely imagining societies where, you know, they aren't kind of based on what we know on our history or current affairs, whatever. There's just a lot more scope for the imagination. And yet we're not seeing that playing out in the, the science fiction and fantasy we're reading. I certainly think so. I mean, the thing is, my when I when I create a fantasy world, especially my focus very much is the world itself, and I I enjoy hugely the the mechanics of creating a world and building societies and following those sort of trains of logic, uh, whereby the world kind of almost fits itself together. And in doing that, you can do all sorts of varied things, and it it just makes the book the the world of the book richer and more interesting and, and similarly when i'm reading that's the sort of thing i find i like to read is where there are interesting and different elements of the world rather than the same kind of tropes being trotted out 
Um, I mean, obviously, if you're the more different your world is from the common tropes that a reader effectively can absorb effortlessly, the more effort you have to put into getting over what's going on in that world. And so I think there there is there is potentially a, a logistical element to the writing there where mm. potentially there's the path of least resistance is to give people something that they immediately recognize. I mean, if, if you want to have elves, you just need to say that they're elves and people will kind of fill in a lot of the gaps. And as long as you're happy with them being very stock elves, you don't need to give a lot of detail, uh, which isn't to say you can't have a very interesting book about elves, but it does. That means you have to basically then work to get away from those tropes. I mean, like, mm. uh, Pratchett's Lords and Ladies is a good example of that one, for example. Well, so, I mean, a lot of the times when you've done this in your stuff, so, you know, we're talking about you write insects and spiders and you've got, I don't, I don't know what you call the ones in um, Echoes of the Fall. The, I, I've let you build them human-animal transformers, but you probably have a better, <laughs> better way to put it than that. It's a very odd mental picture. <laughs> I mean, I, um, but, you know, like you, you've yeah. taken a lot of these, like, animals where, you know, in actually, you know, animal kingdom, there are sort of very different Represent well different representations, but different ways that these things work. You know, in spi- spiders yeah. will have sex with the men and then eat them. <laughs> so the women are definitely on top there. Um, you know, and you, you've taken sort of what you've seen in nature and then actually used that as a way of, of coming up with some of these new things. And I wondered if maybe you felt like that was a way into kind of giving people something that was very different and you know exploring these ideas of matriarchies and and other social constructs but still in a way that people recognize i guess it gives people a useful useful handle because when people generally know i mean spiders are a good example people generally know you know female spiders are are the kind of the bigger more aggressive Mm, yeah strong just physically more powerful spiders i mean interestingly I think the grand majority of representations of fictional spiders, positive and negative, tend to be female. Um, which, okay. yeah, which, so it, people are kind of ready for, all right, you've got spiders, it's, it's a matriarchy uh, to the extent that the, the term applies. And, that, and that's, that will come over very naturally. I mean, interestingly, obviously, you, one of the other uh, matriarchs I deal with is um, in the Echoes of the Fall is, the, is hyenas, because they are also an enormously matriarchal species. Mm. And so the hyena, the people who can turn into hyenas are a very matriarchal society, which I think is something that's less known and may raise more eyebrows in the readership, perhaps. But um, I I suspect that even if I wasn't writing a an animal based book, and I have to say I hadn't really realized it, but almost all (laughs) my books are animal based, except for maybe Guns of the Dawn, um, which is obviously about specifically about a woman doing a man's work in in a man's in a what was previously a patriarchal society until they started to enlist women into the army um but i think i like to think i would still be doing matriarchies and so forth even if i didn't have that animal inspiration but i think it does help because it it gives um it's almost almost disnification in a way isn't it 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 gives people an, an instant handle on what's going on I mean, I guess I'd like to think that, that that most of my readers wouldn't have, if I simply presented a human matriarchal society, that they wouldn't have an in, an, an innate problem with that. But I don't. I mean, I don't know. And like you said, it's not done that often. And mm. um, 
possible I just have very lovely readers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm probably the wrong audience to ask that question to, given that I run a <laughs> podcast on women in genre fiction. Mm. But <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly love seeing that. Um, just, you know, it's it's that thing, you know, we, we constantly talk about on, on this podcast about trying to get away from that default. And it's something that, you know, all of us do. I do it all the time and sort of just Say if, um, you know, I'm reading a novel or a short story and the the protagonist's gender, it often happens if it's sort of first person and that, you know, you don't work out their gender until quite, you know, quite a few paragraphs in. I will have automatically assumed that they're male just because mm. that's kind of, the, they just usually are. And so that that's, you know, if... Obviously, if I don't know anything going in, you know, if if it's obvious on the blurb, then I know. But, you know, it's one of those things where even the smallest things, like Lucy was telling us, you know, when she was writing, she'd, she'd always sort of automatically default to having, you know, oh, if there's a guard that someone comes across, the guard is male. But no, why? Why should that guard be male? You know, and it's it's that kind of thing. And yeah, I, I hope that, that readers would like more matriarchy. <laughs> I mean, one of, one of the things I do in the, the Shadows of the App series, which, I mean, as I mentioned, it's a 10-book series, and it's it's a big world, and there's a you know cast of thousands. So it, the, I get a lot of chance to explore a number of different cultures. And I've got the full gamut in that. There are some matriarchal cultures, and there are some sort of strongly patriarchal cultures and less... Um, and there are cultures that are patriarchies but wouldn't consider themselves so because they think they're very enlightened. And then there are some mm-hmm. cultures that are split down the middle because they're all telepathic and they know there's basically no difference. And they treat everyone absolutely the same. Well, I mean, with that, what I, what I, what I basically found is because you, you, know, you get a lot of supporting cast with all of those, from all of those different societies. And because I've got that wide range. So if you had um, uh, in the shadows, you run into spider kingdom, there are certain roles that women do there because they're dominant. And there are, if you run into the wasp kingdom, who are very strongly patriarchal, a wasp kingdom soldier will be male and ant kingdom soldier could be either because that's, you know, they are entirely egalitarian and you get all that shading and shifting in the different cultures. And that, I mean, that was my first published series. So I guess I'm I've everything else I've come to after that, I'm coming to from that springboard of having written in all of these different types of cultures and had the opportunity to recruit all these different characters of and you know, different gender balances of characters hmm. depending on where they come from. And did you deliberately set out to make sure that you had that, or was it just kind of did it naturally fall that way because you thought it was more interesting to show a wide gamut of societies? Um it's a little column A and a little column B. I certainly, I I got quite sensitised to that kind of knee-jerk um, sort of auto-discrimination um, from a, a lecture of mine, actually, way, way back when I was retaking A-levels back at Boston College. I did a communication studies A-level there, and the lecture there was probably my first encounter of feminism. She made a big, big impression of me, and she was talking about the fact that, you know, she will basically mark you down if you just default to he all the time when you're writing your essays and things like that. Um, and so that was really my first encounter with this idea. And you know, before then, I'm sure I would have basically all my all my guards would have been male, as it were, um, mm. if we if we can use that as a shorthand. <laughs> so going into things like Shadows of the Apt, I was definitely intentionally wanting to 
have this balance of different societies as something extra I could explore in the world. Because it's all, I mean, it's all effectively it's added value for your world building. It makes the world more varied rather than, well, all of the countries have a king and all of the countries have this sort of male warrior class and all of the women are doing this and that kind of thing. Uh, and obviously then you also you have, um, because they're insect kingdom, you have a wealth of female-dominated insect societies to the extent that they actually had to go against nature with things like the wasps because the wasps are patriarchal but of course wasps in nature are they're not they're in, they're insanely matriarchal because they're almost all females in a given any given nest hmm. okay i did not know that <laughs> i mean we, we've sort of touched on this um previously where you were sort of talking about how you know fantasy tends to rely a lot on sort of historical um ideas for in terms of world building but so you know i've noticed that science fiction tends to be where we see a little bit more of this kind of playing with social norms and constructions of society i mean other than sort of the historical basis do you think there's anything else that like that lends science fiction more to this than than fantasy I think fantasy is an inherently more conservative genre. Um, I, I'm not sure I could. Te- I, I have a kind of a, a magic reason why that is, except for perhaps a lot of the kind of the the old style key texts of fantasy, like Tolkien, mm. are just coming from a very conservative place. Uh, and I think that all. I mean, it's also very very obvious with the way that power structures tend to work in fantasy novels. I think science fiction novels, because they tend to be presenting. Not alt- not an alternate world, but the future of our world. That that means they are frequently building on, or dismantling, or bouncing off, or inverting our society. So they're showing that you need. If you're showing a future, you need to show a contrast. And one of the obvious contrasts is 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 in various ways of social engineering. And mm-hmm. so I think that that it, that lends itself more immediately to telling stories about where we might go and and how we might change um i mean logically fantasy should be as good or better because you you're basically making it up out of whole cloth if you've got a secondary world but as i say a lot of a lot of secondary worlds do tend to default to a kind of a pseudo his a pseudo historical um setup that that simply reinforces um a lot of the power structures that we uh that we already know yeah i mean so I, I love science fiction. Science fiction is where I sort of came into genre fiction. Um, that's where I developed my obsessions. Um, but I think, I feel like it's it's one of these areas where we really should be pushing more boundaries. And I feel like, especially when it comes to sort of gender, we often end up just talking about the same books that were published 40, 50 years ago. So someone like Ursula Le Guin, Left yeah. Hand of Darkness. I mean, are we... Have, have we stopped pushing boundaries? Are we not pushing them far enough anymore? I mean, or is it just that, you know, that I don't know about these works and that people aren't talking about newer works that are doing this? I'd like to think it was the latter, to be honest. I mean, I think one of the one of the things we tend to have in the genre is, uh, and this is very much science fiction as well as uh, as well as fantasy, is a a an overwhelming reverence for a certain period when it was the golden age or the classics, mm. which means that a certain set of authors will tend to get um, brought up again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do genuinely believe that uh, in both in science fiction and in fantasy, a lot of, 
a lot of ground is being broken and that sort of that conservative window i think is definitely shifting um i mean it's there are obviously a, a variety of axes of conservatism <laughs> that to to shift but for example i think it's probably rather rarer to find that book where your kind of um aristocratic or monarchic social order is completely unexamined these days which is always one of the big things that i um that i well frankly i mean these days as a reader i find it very difficult to to read a fantasy that's all kings and princes and an inherent belief in the rightness of that kind of um social order Mm. but there aren't that many of those books around these days i think um one of the things you uh, you know, pe- people have very varying views of the whole um, the grimdark movement in fantasy. But one of the things that absolutely did do was um, challenge the um, the inherent right to wield power yes. um, belonging to a certain social class or anything like that. Yes, I mean, I I like for this that we are challenging kind of the, you know, it's it's a bit down with the man and all that but <laughs> that's that's the way I'm going to put it um but I do sort of lament the fact that you know a lot of these things are quite pessimistic and and I'd love to see a bit more uh optimism thrown in there uh just of potentially you know like oh yes power is bad these people yes terrible but we could get something wonderful and I I really do I think that's that's actually, that's a, a direction I'm seeing the the genre shift. I think the, the the kind of the the pendulum is starting to swing back towards more optimistic fantasies, but one that are still I think informed by that um, by the same kind of um, more socially aware sensibilities. A bit of a best of both worlds, I think. Hey, good news for me. <laughs> I mean, let's um, talk a little bit about how you work because you know you've you've mentioned that you love sort of building the world and that's like really important to you and you you know you find that really interesting and fun and you know that's very clear in your books you've got you know really um solid world there i mean how do you start world building and how like how much do you do do you do it as you go do you have like loads and loads of notes that never end up in there you know on the page yeah i'm 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 definitely a planner and i do i start with the world and i plan that around and usually it it is built around a particular shtick and then i will just examine look if this thing is true how does that change everything else uh i mean one of the things i don't tend to do is have well there is this magic thing but it's very hidden away and very few people can access it and therefore it's going to kind of emerge um, into what is otherwise a fairly um, recognisable and mundane sort of fantasy, fantasy society, and that will be the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I mean, just to, to skip back, that's possibly another reason why you tend to get these fairly conservatively presented um, setups is if you're then going to upset the apple, apple cart by revealing the magical whatever you have later on. It's you can it's easier to show the effects of the thing you reveal if if you've got a fairly vanilla setup to start with, I suppose. Yeah. But what I tend to do, and this is, I mean, the best examples of this are probably the insect kinder themselves in the shadows of the apt or the shape changing in the echoes of the fall is I, 
I will generally find a big fantasy thing to have front and center that is absolutely universal in the world. So you've got the, the insect powers or you've got the, uh, the changing into animal forms that is something that is completely fantastical, but it's presented as a perfectly normal thing to the people of that world. Yes. It's not magical. It's not unusual. In fact, it's very unusual if you can't do these things in both cases, which means that everything in that world changes. Um, I mean, this is, I think I, I put an awful lot of thought into the echoes of the fall um, setup and how the fact that people have this relationship with animals and with nature and how it shapes their religion and their beliefs and their, their societies and their rituals and absolutely everything goes through that lens. And I think that, that, that is what I enjoy doing essentially when I world building and that, um, once I've done sufficient preparation at the beginning, I can then sort of, barrel on with the book and whenever i come into a situation i might have specifically thought about there's generally enough related thought i've given to other things that the answer becomes very readily apparent as to how that particular situation will be handled i'm curious this is this is sort of a fun silly question but <laughs> you know like what are some of the most mundane things about your worlds that you actually think about and plan you know from the, i don't know maybe you, you're really concerned about the dental hygiene. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there must well, be sort of very mundane things you like to, to have an idea about. I think more so as I've gone on. Um, I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of little things. I mean, they, one, of the, one of the things that stuck with me the most, I think, is the, um, in the Shadows of the Apt, the Waspkinden, one of the things that they can do, their sting is effectively like an, an energy bolt out of the palm of the hand, which is one of the things that they, they use in warfare, and it obviously makes them terribly fair. But what it also means is an open hand to them, so like even just like a wave or shaking hand or something, is not something they do. And the sign of effectively the sign of peace or submission in the wasp is a clenched fist. And it's just yeah. a little thing like that. And that suddenly that gives you such an, an, a huge amount of extra depth and characterization to the whole culture. Um, because you can kind of see, well, how, how is that? How's just that little thought of little thing? How has that led them down certain paths? And how has that contributed to making them the fairly, the fairly sort of violent and aggressive people they are? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the thing. I, it's actually one I mean, of the reasons I love sort of genre fiction is that this idea of, you know, just some small change can can really make something quite unique and incredible. And the other thing, if you can come up with a really good just sort of turn of phrase that people in that culture would use because it makes sense to them, um, is always because it's it's very hard to do because it's got to sound very natural and at the same mm. time it's got to be alien to us. I mean, there's there's a bit in Children of Time where a, when a couple of the spiders are communicating and one of them. Is, one of them is a scientist and all of her lab assistants are males, which is sort of unheard of at that stage, stage in their uh, civilization. And she basically says, well, like, I can't work with other females. They're always measuring legs against each other, which obviously is, is like yeah. the, the sort of a <laughs> dominance thing to show how big you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand that because you know, given that I'm 
I'm a foreigner. And, uh, you know, so, so certain things don't translate, uh, you know, that I would say in Australia. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, that kind of thing always fascinates me. And it's actually one of the reasons I've always loved Star Trek was that it was all often about kind of culture clash and looking at how different cultures mm. interacted and when they, their basic kind of, um, communication styles were so different um and that that didn't work and and that's what i i love to see that um yeah so that that really works for me <laughs> i enjoy it in terms of you know you've kind of written quite a bit about different kinds of, of societal structures i mean is there are there any particular social norms that we take for granted um that you'd like to challenge in in fiction going forward or you know any things you'd you'd really like to just kind of throw the lid off just i think the the big ones for me i mean let, let me let me let me digress a bit what are the <laughs> i what have i listened to a lot of podcasts one of the podcasts i used to listen to was called the ancient world and it basically took a historian's eye view of the the history of civilization up to just before the roman empire mm-hmm and one thing that really struck me is you kind of get this setup from, um, I think, at, at the very, at the, at the very least, the, from the Sumerians upwards, which is the big man model, where you've got a big man at the top and then a series of big men below him and a series, and then they, everyone else does what they say, mm-hmm. and obviously that is the model that we still have. And that's the model that informed all of your medieval aristocracy and so forth. It's just this idea of a series of a series of bigger men and in you know it primarily has been men and along with that big man thing you get the sort of the the value of the warrior and the idea of the you know the the the, no, the noble war and the the idea that you have your warrior hero and all your warrior king and their life and their whims and their desires are worth spending hundreds and thousands of other people's blood to get done, whether you're basically making a war or making a huge monument to how wonderful you are, all that sort of thing. And it is still something we have today. And that's the big sort of power structure I sporadically attack in my books. <laughs> And sort of ca- and call into question. And I, I, you know, it's, I'm not. I'm by far from the only person doing this in their writing. And in fact, like I say, it does seem to be becoming um, joyously more and more common that we aren't having the the you know the jolly band of princes tr- trotting around the kingdom writing wrongs because writing wrongs is the thing that only princes can do. Mm. Um, that's not you know that that kind of trope. I think is hopefully in the past for um, for fiction because. You know, the the idea of that kind of, oh, well, you're a prince and therefore there are certain things reserved to you. And one of them is that you are the only person who can save the world is something I find intensely annoying. Because if you look at historical princes, they're almost all horrible, horrible people. Yes. One of the things I like seeing is um, it's just not capitalism. <laughs> I mean, anything but capitalism would be just interesting. Mm. Some more anarchies, you know, just... Just come up with some different economic structures. That's something I'd like to see. In yes, fiction. I mean, there was a very, very good um, panel this uh, FantasyCon this year about fa- uh, fantasy economics, and I've seen a few others. It's not a common panel topic, but every so often it crops up, and it's one of those areas I probably do not know enough about to do it in full detail. But I've, I've I mean, I certainly have sort of non-money societies. Mm. 
um, a very so you know there there is no money for most of, for most of the different societies in the Tiger and the Wolf, and there are there are there's one of the very very large states in the Shadows of the Apt basically work through nobility and barter, but it is kind of falling apart at the seams. So that's maybe not the best example of um, <laughs> a working non-capitalist society. I mean, interesting. I know there are quite. I, on the back of the panel I went to, I met a number of um, fantasy writers who are also well into their economics. So it's something that would be, it would be nice to see explored. Definitely. I mean, we've talked a little bit about um, sort of that more and more of these um, of genre works are challenging different social norms. I mean, what are some of your favorite ones um, that, you know, and what do you think that they did well? As far as challenging challenging social order, I think China Mayville is one of the 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 biggest names going. In all honesty, mm-hmm. I mean certainly with the, all his uh, his new Crobazon books, really do give you a a society that's that's being where the structures of power are being challenged from the ground up, especially obviously when you get to um, Iron Council. I think the other author, I think, who does some really revolutionary stuff, both with gender and with social structure, is Mary Gentle. In okay, her... I don't know her. You really? Yeah. Oh my! Oh my word! Well, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm being I educated. Be <laughs> I would be honoured to introduce you to uh, the works of Mary Gentle. Um, she's one of her best. She's got a, a two-book series starting with Golden Witchbreed, which is her very well-known science fiction um, book. I mean, one of the things there is, it's a human. It's a human, um, I think, sort of ethnobiologist on an alien world, and she gets cut off, and she gets, she effectively has to get to grips with her civilization when she's kind of on the run within it. And there are some wonderful, wonderful things there with um, sort of gender and role and and uh and social structure but also uh the her, the books of hers that i like the most i think are her fantasy book the white crow series starting with rats and gargoyles although well, actually it's starting with some short stories but there are there, there are a whole there are a whole load of them but one of the places she goes there we get an alternate um post-restoration britain but cromwell and charles ii and a lot of the other major historical characters are all just effortlessly female, and it's uh, this is the architecture of desire, and it's it's. Um, I hope that I hope I've got that right, uh, and it's it's just an amazing sort of alternate magical history, and there you know, with all sorts of weird things and sort of Gnostic cults and Rosicrucianism and all sorts of other stuff sort of impinging on it and. She, effectively, she shows you how easy it can be to deviate from those sort of those standard histories that people tell in fantasy, and how much of a a more interesting book it becomes by doing so. I one of the, I, one of the other ones, a, a recent book. Um, I don't know if you know Jeff Vandermeer's uh, Southern Reach trilogy. Yes, mm-hmm. which is uh, being made into what looks like what looks like it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal film. Uh, but um, that's that. I thought that was just particularly interesting from a gender point of view because you that initial team you get in the in Annihilation that gets sent into Area X is all women, and it's there's and it's not. I don't think there's a particular reason 
in Book List All Women, that's just how it's fallen out, I think. And that, that I thought was, again, it just goes to show you don't have to have, well, there are three men and here is the woman on the tomb and things yes. like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just it goes to show that the, the things that people seem to think are, are barriers really, really aren't. You just have to, just have to think slightly, slightly out of the box. Definitely. I mean, when it comes to when people try to do this but don't do it well, I mean, what are some of the the kind of pitfalls you've seen of people who kind of try to do it and just fail spectacularly without naming names? We don't want to name and shame. I mean, there are there are a variety of ways. I mean, there's almost a bit of a a bit of a pincer that if if you are if you're feeling your way into the sense of well, I don't want to do the standard sort of manly men book with only manly men in it. The, um, you can go down the way of, well, I will, I will basically have a character who is a manly man. Only this one will be a woman mm-hmm. and then nothing else changes. Yeah. <laughs> or you get the, well, I will write a book about a woman, but and in a fancy world, but she will be doing women things. So she will be a healer or she, you know, she will, she will, she will be overflowing with the milk of human kindness. She will, she will heal the, she will, Heal the world, the world through love. And although these, I mean, these are these, these are obviously all things you can do absolutely validly in fantasy, it's the problem where you get the you get the book with the female lead, but all the assumptions about sort of what belongs to the feminine and what belongs to the masculine are still there and unchallenged in the book. Mm. Uh, and those are the, those are, I think, the t- the two problem poles you can get when you're launching out into that kind of territory. All right. Well, I mean, that's kind of covered my questions. I think that was a good discussion. But um, maybe, um, I don't know uh, if you've got, other than, did you want to do like a little pitch for Dogs of War? Oh, like, actually, sorry. Oh? I have suddenly thought, I've suddenly thought of another uh, series of books I wanted to bring up for, 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 doing, doing, for well. doing it well. Yeah, um, yeah there's um, Emma Newman's Split Worlds, um, yes. which is one of the most savage i think critiques of gender and power um i mean you in in there you've got you've got this sort of um this sort of the society that exists in a thing in a place called the nether which exists between our world and the the kind of full-on fairy realms and it's not changed since the early 1800s and the main character has lived in our world for a fair amount of time before she's yanked back there to take up her proper social role and emma does not pull any punches, especially towards the, the the end of the series, about just how loathsome and exploitative that sort of that sort of that sort of society is, both for the women and and the men in it. Because obviously yes. the the men are also victims of it, even though they are taking up the positions of power because they're not allowed to be anything other than that idea of yeah. of the masculine. Yes, Will is sort of uh, both a villain and kind of sympathetic as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I, one of those kind of, again, coming back to like the mundane things, one of the mundane things I loved about the Split Worlds was just how much Kathy misses jeans. And I feel like I, <laughs> I absolutely would be there with her. I would miss jeans. <laughs> so, yeah, do you, would you like to, to pitch um, your latest book for our listeners if they haven't already bought themselves a copy, which they should definitely do? Uh, well, okay. The, this is uh, Dogs of War. Um, it is a set in the near future when, because of a some catastrophic failures with military robots, we are using military bioengineered animals 
One of these is Rex. He's a uh, dog bioform. He is being employed in a very nasty civil war in Central America, mostly to commit war crimes, although he doesn't realize this. All he knows is that he's doing what his master tells him, and that makes him a good dog. Um, Rex is in control of a squad which includes Honey, who is a bear, Dragon, who is some kind of hybrid reptile, and Bees, who is a swarm of bees. And shortly into the book, Rex gets cut off from his master and his employers and his chain of command and starts to actually have to make tactical and indeed moral decisions of his own. And the book kind of works from there as Rex sort of assumes full personhood and assumes responsibility for who he is and what he's doing. Yeah, and I recommend you read it. (laughs) It's very good. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. 